And that's really been the essence of my story, is the fact that God has done for me what I could not do for myself. Dove Faith Cafe. Real stories by real people. Welcome to Dove Faith Cafe. I'm Marie. You'll hear more from me later. Today, we have for you a story from Andrew. Andrew is a traveler and tells us the story of the longest journey he ever made. It's only when Andrew gives himself over to God that he finds his way home. Enjoy Andrew's story, The Longest Journey. Good evening. I feel like I'm doing stand-up comedy here. Because <laughs> you know what they say, at least I do, is that uh, comedy is like cooking. As long as you think it's good, that's all that matters. <laughs> but uh, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a real honor to be here tonight. Um, you know, I've always loved to travel, and I've gotten to do some, a lot of cool things in life. You know, um, and that's, you know, a lot of that was a direct result of my, my parents. They're beautiful people. Um, they didn't become beautiful until just a few years ago, though. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know what happened. Um, but really, so do you know what you get when you cross a Catholic and a Quaker? You get me. Um, and that's essentially what happened. Uh, my folks decided on the Episcopal Church, and, uh, and uh, they are. They're beautiful people, and I say that in honor of them, um, simply because, you know, like, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be exposed to all of this and have been grown up with faith and those things that I turn my back on. Um, but yes, I've always loved to travel. You know, I've gotten to go to Europe and do a lot of really cool things through school and, uh, and but uh, probably the most memorable trip I've ever taken was 28 hours in the back of a cop car one summer. And, uh, and no, I'm not in law enforcement. <laughs> so, but uh, for me, it's one of those things, you know, I've done the dance with drugs and alcohol for a long time, since I was about 17. Um, you know, and for me, it started with, it's one of those things, you know, there, there's an imaginary line in life, and uh, you really don't know where it is until you cross it, and then there's no going back. You know, and, and lots of people try and understand whatever addiction is, and you know, um, people are addicted to coffee, or they're addicted to that, you know what I mean? Um, but it's really hard for me to grasp that other side of it when you're uh, running meth through your nose and drinking booze all day long, uh, living a semi-sharp kind of life, which essentially is about crystal meth. And, uh, but for me, you know, that, that, that process in, in, in the, over the course of time of just crossing lines and crossing lines, you know, and as I said, I grew up in the Episcopal Church and I grew up in faith. Um, but what I found today is that I didn't really have a God of, uh, a God of my understanding or wasn't willing to even look to that, that there's a possibility of something greater than I am. Because um, when you live the way I lived, I was in charge all the time until someone else made me stop. And the only time I could ever stop from the time I was 17 was whether I was in a psych ward or a rehab or in jail. And what happened for me was that uh, on May 26th of 2018, 
Uh, God intervened in my life and did for me what I could not do for myself in the form of a Branson City, Missouri uh, um, uh, sheriff. And what happened was I was arrested on a warrant out of Virginia. And the longer that I thought about this, I came to find out I'd never actually been to Virginia. <laughs> Yet I was wanted there. And, uh, and that's really been the essence of my story is the fact that God has done for me what I could not do for myself. So as I sat in the jail cell trying to figure out how am I going to get in, how am I going to get out of this, um, you know, the lights began to shine because when the darkness lifts and the light illuminates all the chaos and, the and just the craziness in the life that you've lived, um, it becomes a pretty dark place. It really does. And, you know, I thought I knew what dark was. You know, I'd eventually run myself, uh, uh, found myself homeless in Nevada and Reno. And, uh, you know, for a guy like me, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is to win $17,000 one night. And that set me on a run for several months as my wife was in tow behind me. And uh, we were like Bonnie and Clyde. And... Uh, and so I thought I knew what darkness was walking the streets of Reno contemplating whether I was going to throw myself in front of a bus several times. Um, and probably the only unselfish thought that I could have at that point was that I had seen enough movies to know what happens when you throw yourself in front of a bus. It affects others. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted to die but was afraid to. But as I sat in that jail, you know, things started to happen. You know, I was, I was put into a position where I had nowhere else to go. And what I found is that today, that was the best thing that could ever happen to me, was the fact that I had no other options. There wasn't a dollar left to borrow, not a phone call to be made, not another hustle to happen. I was stuck. And so as I sat in that jail for like, for about 30 days, um, you know, being really good to myself, I weighed about 135 pounds when I got arrested. And, uh, <laughs> And I'm six foot, six foot three, and you know, I mean, I was, I was a skinny guy. Um, but one morning, they, they said, uh, came knocking on the cell door, and they said, it's time to go. And I said, where am I going? And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to Virginia or not, but there they were. Uh, and uh, I said, how am I going? You know, and I had no idea. He said, I think you're going on a plane. I thought, good lord, I'm like Nicolas Cage from Con Air. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. Uh, two sheriffs from Bonnetock, Virginia. I had no idea where that was. Uh, they showed up and handcuffed and shackled me and off in the back of a Ford Explorer we roared. And it's 14 hours to Bonnetock, Virginia from Branson, Missouri. Um, so at some point you gotta pee. And uh, what happens is they cart you into, this is the middle of summer, handcuffed and shackled walking into a gas station and uh, they don't know if you're a mass murderer or what, but there you are. And it's a humbling, embarrassing, I don't know what the experience was, but it was not pleasurable. Um, but as I mentioned, I gained quite, uh, you know, my pants didn't quite fit real well. You know, they fattened me up in jail a little bit. And uh, so I got in there. I had to pee. But let me tell you, I couldn't get my pants down. So me and the sheriff got really close at that point. Because <laughs> they say there is no spot where God is not. And, uh, but those men, I tell you what, as I look back on that, and I can tell you today, those guys didn't know me. They, they were doing their job. And what they did, though, was they talked to me about God. And they talked to me about changing my life. And, and it was, again, God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. So at that point, you know, I got to Virginia. 
you know, you do what you do in jail, you eat, you sleep, you read, and uh, and then it was time to go home there. I had done another 60 days there, and I say these things like, you know, like, like going to jail for the short amount of time that I went is not super hard, if you've ever been to jail. <laughs> you know, I haven't gone for years, you know, I know people that have gone for decades and things like that, I, that's not me. Um, I, uh, that's not somewhere I want to spend my life. So I was getting ready to get out, okay? Go to court. My mom had to fly out from Indiana to Virginia to come get me, her almost 40-year-old boy. And uh, I get ready to go after I go to court, pack up all my stuff, I go to the desk, and I can't leave. I've got another warrant in North Carolina. And that was probably one of the hardest things that I had to deal with was that I had to, they let me see my mom and you know, that's one of those like things that you just are like, man, you know, I feel worthless, you know? And it scares me a little bit too, because I got a little girl now. <laughs> and uh, it's like, man, you know, I, I don't know how you even approach that or deal with that, you know? Because um, I can look at my life and I realize that pretty much everything that bad, anything bad that's ever happened to me has been a direct result of my actions. Yet my family, my parents are people that good, honest people that have never done anything to harm anybody and live very good lives and yet they've had the repercussions of, of my choices and had to deal with that. So that's a hard thing you know, to, to really look at and I can look at that today and see that um, you know, there's a lot of harm done and things that I'm trying to do continuously to, to, to live a different life and change that relationship with them. Um, but I got to go to North Carolina from there, and I've been to North Carolina before. Um, but you know what's funny is that whole time that I was in jail, you know, because you can drink and get high in jail. It's, I mean, it's there, you know. But I was committed to the fact, like, I was done. I wanted a different life. I wanted a changed life. Um, and so I got to North Carolina, and, and they dropped my charges. You know, again, God do it for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I spent this about four months trying to con, manipulate, figure out some way to get out of this situation. How do I get out of this? And I remember reading this book, um, and it was talking about this idea of being, you know, shaken to the core, you know, shaken to the roots. And I thought, God, there's nothing left to shake. There's nothing. And there was an acceptance at that point. And within the next 24 hours after that, they showed up and picked me up in North Carolina, and uh, oh yeah, I had another warrant back in Missouri too. Um, so I had, a, I had a free ride in a circle there to complete the 28 hours. And But within a blink of an eye, I was out. And it was different. Now let me tell you, just because you get out of jail and you're, you know, I've been running and gunning for a number of years, doing not paying any bills, not doing any of that stuff. It's kind of like, you know, you know, you're driving a station wagon and everything. It's like, well, just throw that in the back, throw that in the back. And one day you just hit a brick wall. And then here it all comes. And that's exactly what happened to me. But Garrison Keillor says it, you know, time is so it doesn't all happen at once. And space is so it doesn't all happen to me. <laughs> and that's been my experience thus far. Um, but I will say that what has happened is that I have been able to develop a relationship with God. You know, I can't stand up here tonight and tell you that I'm a tambourine-waving, out on evangelical, out there on the streets, just marching and bringing people to Jesus. I'm not there. And that was part of my reservations with coming and doing this thing. 
was the fact that, 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 you know, I struggled with some of those things, but I do know that God continually has revealed himself to me in my life and has brought these people into it. And I, these people, they all talked about this God of their understanding and how God had worked in their life. It was a beautiful thing for me. It, is, it, it, is, it has changed my life and my perspective on things. It really has. So what I can tell you today is that, uh, you know, in, in May 26, I've been sober for four years. You know? We're the only people that, that get applauded for burning their lives to the ground. <laughs> But it, 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 you know, it, it, like I said, you know, my wife and I, we had a daughter. We weren't ever going to have any kids. We've done that. And, uh, you know, um, we have a home that's filled with spirituality and God. And, you know, my family owns a business. And, uh, you know, I, I stole from that business and did those things. And yet today I'm back there and I'm a very active participant in that. And again, that's God doing for me what I cannot do for myself. You know, we talked about earlier, you know, that, you know, there's things that happen in life and you question, like, you know, you know, it's not all, it's not all roses by any means. Um, but I think the, the common denominator that we all have as we sit in here tonight is that we all have things. We all go through stuff. And it's been a beautiful experience to having to be able to share my stuff with this group in a number of different places. So I certainly, I, thank you. If you have a faith story you'd like to tell, go to our website at dovefaithcafe.org to find out how you can share your story. If you like what you hear, let us know. Please subscribe and share and leave a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and on our website, dovefaithcafe.org. Welcome to Dove Faith Cafe. Uh, I'm Marie Gambetta, and here with me is my co-host, Jordan Trendleman, seminarian and Hello. Father Brian Hello. Grant, Dean Hi. of the Cathedral of St. James in South Bend, Indiana. So welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Pleasure as always. We're here to unpack Andrew's story, which people yeah. have just heard. So what, you know, what, what, what stands out for you? What, what are your first impressions? For me, I, every time uh, I hear this story, the, the very first thing that, uh, th that I respond to is how funny he is. And, and yeah. he talks about, you know, his, his stand-up comedy and, uh, and, and his propensity for that. And, and you know, and I do recognize that humor is both a gift and a defense mechanism. Um, and, and so I, I, I have a sense that he's using it in both ways. But then he gets into this, you know, incredibly serious story. Uh, but even at that, he's got a, a kind of lighthearted, self-deprecating take on the whole thing in recognizing that, that the only person that's really to blame for any of his predicament is himself. And, and he, he sees both the, the seriousness in that, but also the absurdity in it. And, and I have appreciated that every time I've heard it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
How about you, Jordan? Well, I, I, I would agree. I mean, the, the humor of Andrew's story is something that really stands out. And it's also something that makes it incredibly relatable, you know? Uh, and I think that he would never attribute like a deep spiritual truth even to his own story just because of his, uh, his general vibe of, of, like you mentioned, his self-deprecating humor. But there is some real intense um, uh, spiritual merit to this kind of idea of getting over yourself enough in order to have this kind of humorous take on your own predicaments. And kind of uh, his, his story really is one of not just the rock bottom and the discovering of faith, but this consenting to a will bigger than ours. And it, it's, it's uh, while it's funny, it's also just a deeply moving story beneath the surface. And I think, you know, in the, in the context of our live events, it was a great kind of like unicorn chaser, kind of like palate cleanser for some of the stories that, that, that are undoubtedly heavy in their, in their content. But I don't think that Andrew's story, just because it's funny, is any any less heavy. No, you know, not at all. In, in that regard, you know. Um, and and uh, yeah, always a delight. Uh, just a charming, a, a great charisma uh, about him that I think is just makes him super relatable and, and super engaging. Yeah. So. What well, one of the things that that humor can do in a, in a heavy story is it can take us out of the moment you know when things get really really heavy and they drag us down so we don't end up crying in our soup it <laughs> lightens the mood for just a minute you know so that we can take a breath and dive back into it it, it reminds us that it's a story and um and and i i do appreciate you were talking about his his perspective of getting over himself i do appreciate that that he realizes there are people in prison who are there for years and decades or longer. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's not his story. And those are mm -hmm. awful stories also. So he saw himself as not the worst off person there, you know, for, by, by any. Yeah. 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 And I think also he recognizes that as one of the things that, that, made him open to being steered in a different direction he did not want to go down that path it was right. not he wanted any part of um right. so that even in his worst moments um he was aware that that it could be worse you know <laughs> so uh and and that yeah. was uh, an eye-opening thing for him and uh yeah so Really, you know, I want to just touch on the humor thing one more time. I mean, I use humor homiletically, uh, and it is a way of disarming people to allow them to hear something weighty. And his yeah. story, I think you're absolutely right, both of you, that um, it, what he's talking about is deadly serious um, and, and had tremendous consequences to his family across the board, and, and he became aware of that. Um, and and the road that he was going down, and we'll get back to that metaphor in a minute, but the road that he was going down was really nothing good at all. And, uh, and, but he uses his humor as a way of allowing us to walk that road with him uh, without, without feeling the, kind of the full weight of the, uh, uh, of the emotion of the situation, which is, is helpful because it lets us in. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, very important. I, I was thinking about um, all the places that God showed up in his story, and he didn't mention it specifically, but but in the beginning of his story, when he talks about 
being in Reno and trying to figure out how to throw himself under the bus, getting the courage to do that. But he realized that that would impact a whole lot of other people besides himself. And he had a moment of compassion and, and thought outside of himself, a moment of unselfishness that, you know, and Andrew's a good person. So, so that certainly could have come from him, but when you're chemically altered, you know, mm -hmm. your, your good self doesn't always come to the, to the surface. Mm -hmm. And that could be, for me, that was a moment when God reached in and said, hang on, let's think about this. Let's think about who else this is going to harm. And, and it's, and it's, and it's a, it's a, and I don't even know if it was an intentional plot device, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very good and well-used uh, foreshadowing of, of his later consent and moment in, in, in the cell where he's just, you know, I've just been shaken as much as I can be shaken kind of moment, you know, but it's, it's a real, it's kind of that outside of himself that like the bigger, the bigger picture where, where I'm not the, always the center of this movie, you know, moment yeah. is, right. is, uh, is really foreshadowing of that emptying of himself to God's will later, later in the story. It's, it's a, um, it, it, it just one well, other thing that makes that story so good, so good, you know? And, and that's a good, I love that line that he said, you know, I've been shaken to the core. There's nothing left to shake, you know, yeah. that's, that's rock bottom right there, you know, and, and I suppose you can hit rock bottom and, and stay there, or you can hit rock bottom and you can go, you know, move up, you know, you can emerge. I, I heard somebody say in, in a, in a, in a, a homily here recently that, that rock bottom looks different to a lot of people. And it was that they're, they're, they're preaching oh. on uh, Jesus's critique of, of the rich man uh, who, who ends up in hell and is, is begging for Lazarus to just give him a little bit of dip of water, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and kind of unpacking that critique of wealth and, 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 and privilege and how like sometimes rock bottom can be extreme wealth and, and, and privilege as well. And so rock bottom looks different, different from everybody, but it, but it does involve that moment of like being like, I am just at my, at my wits end. I've reached, I've reached the yeah. end of my own grasping, controlling intellect. And I, and I'm, I'm forced into a position of faith, you know? Uh, right. And so it's, it's universally yeah. applicable, I think. Yeah, Jordan, that's exactly it, isn't it? I mean, it's that what has finally taken over complete control of your life, and that that can be anything. Um, success and <laughs> you know, success can be that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I, I can think of uh, of plenty of of examples in in Hollywood where fame has consumed them and they flamed out. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, they're and and so what what he was doing in his story in that moment of. Uh, you know, allowing that little ray of light to come in that said there is still something beyond me outside of me that I'm responding to. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, I think that's correct. It, you know, there's absolute foreshadowing of what is to come, whether he intended it or not. Let's assume he yeah. did. And he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have complete faith that he is, yeah. he is quite that quite that clever and kind of. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. That that seems to be his moment of acceptance right there, you know, when he just said, okay, I'm done. You know, like you said, I can't control anything else. I, I, I'm at my wit's end. I'm shaken to the core. Now I've got to allow God to do for me what I can't do for myself because I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of myself, you know, to somewhere yeah. in scripture. Yeah.
Go ahead, Jordan. You were going to say something. Uh, well, I, I just in, in reflecting on Andrew's story you know, earlier today, I, I really there's there's so much that's said in here that isn't actually said, and it, it kind of pertains to the twelve step program for me, and <laughs> and that there's this um, that here here we are in this in this modern era within the church, and we're exploring, especially as Episcopalians, like what does evangelism look like? And we're kind of discovering this, like this, this modality of, of, of storytelling as being this super effective way of, of sharing personal revelation and, and, and our connectedness to God. And, and that's been going on in AA in the form of the big talk for a very, very long time. And, and part of, part of Andrew's, even though his, he was very nervous when we first started working with, with him about, about being in front of people, he, he showed a, a expertise in this environment that, other people that were participating in the same way didn't necessarily have an experience with. And he got that from his recovery program. He got that from, and so, you know, I, I kind of pictured, I kind of pictured Andrew on the streets of Reno and some kind of pious person walking by and be like, you know, that kid could learn a lot from some, from a little bit of church in his life. And, and here we are um, on the flip side in, in his triumph within his own addiction and in his ongoing process of that, of that healing of his mind and spirit. We're learning as a church how to tell our own story by his experience within that program. And I just thought that was I, something I wanted to kind of uh, bring our attention to conversationally for a minute that that this yeah. that uh, there's a real culture of vulnerability and storytelling and intimacy in storytelling that we could really learn from within the 12 step program, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you, the 12 step program was all over his story, all over it. And uh, and I'm so grateful to AA for for um, for Andrews and for many 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 of us for continued um, success and growth and searching for that higher power as, or as 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 um, he says the God of my understanding you know I yeah. thought that was a great a great line yeah. yeah yeah and you know I would echo that you know with within the Episcopal Church and and not solely within our church by any stretch of the imagination but. Um, that idea of storytelling and, and to be able to reveal to some extent what you want to have revealed, but, but also to become vulnerable in front of other people uh, is, is both incredibly frightening at, at one level, but also incredibly freeing at another. And, and so much of what has been healing and helpful to the extent that it has been is our ability to tell those stories for anybody to be able to tell their story. And so I think about, you know, St. Margaret's House, which sits behind the Cathedral of St. James, the day shelter for women. And, you know, I, I describe them as the most effective church in town. And part of their story is that they have this check-in time every morning in which uh, their guests are encouraged to stand up and just say what's going on in their lives and, and to share what their joys and their struggles and their sorrows are. And I, I hear that, you know, and it's incredibly liturgical what they're doing, but, but I hear that in, in terms of church, you know, would we dare try that at an eight o'clock or a 1030 service <laughs> in the morning? You know, it's what we desperately want, but nobody is willing to do it, you know, to make that we sit in pews all facing forward. I'm trying, I, yeah. I have tried desperately to get rid of pews. Um, yeah. But we sit in pews facing forward and we, we, we interact with one another at the piece, maybe, you know, with, with very uh, superficial kinds of greetings. Um, some more than others. I don't speak by any stretch of the imagination for every church everywhere. But 
there's this idea that that you know what really you know one of the things that Jesus says is I no longer call you servants I call you friends and so this idea that friendship is really at the core of what it is we're called to do and be and and part of that is that sharing is that deep sharing and vulnerability and, and yeah. willing to talk about our stories with one another and so to bring it back around um, uh, he did that incredibly well uh, and, and courageously and effectively yeah absolutely I love I love that idea of the check-in Brian um, you know thinking about different retreats that I've been on or different meetings or the the best ones for me have been the ones where they say, can we check in with one another? And people are sharing their stories. You know, here's what, here's what's happened since the last time we talked and you, you get drawn into their story or I do anyway. And, and it's just, it, it draws us not only into one another's lives, but it deepens the connection that we have with one another. And I love that idea of, of a check-in before the liturgy you know, on a Sunday. Yeah. As liturgy, you know, as, as, as liturgy. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. We, 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 we joke about the coffee hour being another sacrament and things like that, but there is some truth to the holiness of that time to, yeah. to, to practice being vulnerable in a safe place that we've hopefully cultivated in our spiritual communities. Do you know what I mean? A safe yeah. place, a leveling place, place where we can have these conversations um, and practice having these conversations so that when we have them in a less than ideal space uh, that we have a little bit of practice with it. Um, but, you know, so we, we joke about that idea of, of that being a sacrament, but there is something um, important and special about it. And, and it's an opportunity that I think that we could take even better advantage of and foster the idea of taking better advantage of and normalizing spiritual conversations during that time period of church. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and you can say this to uh, to Father Jim Terrell if you want, but the uh, <laughs> I, I, um, coffee hour may be the only sacrament that we understand intuitively as adults in America. You know, it's kind of uh, the rest have to be explained. Coffee hour we get, but you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, you know, and sorry if this is a rabbit hole we're going down. You can edit this out, but right, right. Uh, but. Um, you know, the, the funeral would be the other one that we kind of just get. We understand it because what we're doing is we're, we are telling a story of a person in the context of, of uh, their life and, and handing over or commending them uh, to Jesus. And it, it's probably more intuitively sacramental than many of the other things that we do because it involves story and, and telling mm. somebody and, and putting that story in a particular context, which is which is super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there, there are no instructed coffee hours, right? There isn't a, there's no need. That's a very good point. I like that about it being an intuitive part of our worship. That's a, I like that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have, you know, when I was listening to this uh, once again, Andrew's story, I, I was really struck. What, what resonated with me is the whole idea, you know, there's a, a kind of uh, uh, Thelma and Louise character of this. It's a, it's, traveling story right it's mm -hmm. a journey story which which reminds me of pilgrimage and you know getting from here to there which is always of course is you know you begin in one place not only physically but spiritually and you end up in a completely different place um and you know it's not too much that's difficult to grasp about that but his was truly i thought a pilgrimage story and you think about the the great pilgrimages of the bible and the exodus and, and where uh israel began in slavery 
uh, in bondage and then with great courage and tremendous difficulty over a long period of time and a lot of stop start and a lot of failing and a lot of angering God and, and God's forgiveness and providence, you end up with Israel coming into the promised land. And that resonated with me in his story as well, that there, there is just a good, uh, you know, kind of biblical motif that, that undergirds that whole thing that's available uh, in his story, but also to the rest of us. And also the other, the other one was, uh, because I think it's one of the funniest stories in the Bible, uh, is in Numbers. It's the story of Balaam, you know, on oh, yeah. his way uh, to do that. <laughs> God not want him to do, and he's riding yeah. his donkey, and the donkey yeah. turns away, and, you know, yeah. and, and um, Balaam goes to chastise his donkey and the donkey starts speaking and that's not even the weirdest part of the story you know so <laughs> it's just this you know this amazing journey and this pilgrimage that has these really kind of deeply funny things about it that are also deadly serious because in that story the the donkey yeah. by turning away saves Balaam's life but he doesn't realize it for for a bit so you know yeah. so you know what's what's the thing that intervenes for us that saves our life on our journey that we don't even know at the time and mm. for him, it was jail and it was two police on the way from you know from missouri to uh to virginia it, you know and, and just that that sort of moment of of helplessness and i love that story of having to uh go to the bathroom and, and needing right. to do i mean it's just deeply funny but also if that happened to any of us it would be deeply humiliating oh yeah yeah and, and, um, and the vacationers yeah. vacationers at the gas station you know exactly <laughs> who had no and idea yet, if he was a mass murderer or if you know what it right 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 yeah right they don't know you know they yeah. don't know they see a guy in handcuffs and that kind of reduces him to yeah to, you know what what he appears to be rather than who he is and and yet it's also the opening for him uh, to hear these two police officers talk about God and, and you know, the witness that, that they bring to God in his life and as the beginning of, of transformation. So I, that whole idea of pilgrimage, I think, just really yeah. resonated with me throughout his story. Yeah, yeah. How about, how about the theme of redemption? You know, I think about his family and having family members who are, you know, uh, addicted in the past and, and currently it is, um, it, that's a, that's a tough road for the family to walk. Let me tell you. And, and I've met his dad and his dad is everything Andrew says he is and more, you know, he's just the kindest, most warm hearted individual that you could imagine. And to have your child not only turn away from you, but to, to do all of that. Right. And, and, and then to forgive, to forgive your child at the end and, and watch your child become a success, which is, you know, what Andrew's done, you know, to watch that journey, as you say, a pilgrimage. Um, I, it's just, it's, it says a lot about the character of his family, his parents and, and the rest of his family, that they not only forgave him and welcomed him back, but let him work in the store. You know, it's a great store. It's a very successful store. And he's got a major role there. And I, I love that. I, I just think that's fantastic. So redemption, yeah. thoughts on redemption. It, it, it brings to mind why, why we, you know, uh, 
and not just within our faith tradition, but many, you know, many faith traditions have have utilized the archetype of mother or father as a as a form for representing uh, that which is unrepresentable in God, you know, and that yeah. that that because uh, it really is uh, that kind of we can we can aspire towards that kind of forgiveness and that unconditional love, but I think that it's more often than not most exemplified and. and the parent-child relationship, and and so um, it's kind of like in my mind, I, I don't I don't have children, so I can't completely uh, relate to it on that level. But I can see it from the outside and say this is a beautiful template for the kind of love that we're called to in each other, and even exists despite all obstacles between human beings on some fundamental natural level uh, by virtue of their of their connection through through child rearing and then all that. And it's just yeah. a, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful template for the, the way we're called to live. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in spite of all of that, God still welcomes us back with open arms. When we, we get in our own way, we <clears throat> mess it up and we <laughs> sabotage our own lives. God still opens his arms and says, welcome. Yeah. I forgive you. Yeah. I love you. What, what was that you did? I don't even remember. You yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah. Do you need a job? Yeah. I got a job for you. You know, yeah. God says. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that that's the uh it's it's the I think unseen, oft forgotten weight of the parable of the prodigal son mm-hmm. is what the father was giving up, what the father was risking in order to welcome his profligate son back into his home. Um, and, uh, culturally he was, he was, it, it wasn't even a faux pas. It was not done. It was not to be done. That, that kind of forgiveness was beyond the pale and, uh, would have cost him his standing in, in his own community. Um, so, you know, that risk and, in, in, in reaching out and, in, in always believing and hoping and, and, and praying for the best for someone you dear, dearly love. So that, the relationship always takes precedence over the the hurt. Um, that's very difficult to live into, um, and and I've watched that in my own family, um, and it's it's incredibly painful. I you know see it up close a lot, and um, you know those we we can't ever. It's not an easy thing. It, it's, it is, I think, one of the hardest things in the world to uh, forgive and welcome back uh, into your life somebody who has done you great harm. Um, so, yeah, you know, his, his talking about his parents, uh, I found incredibly powerful. And, you know, and, and I mean, and that was one of his first bits of humor in the beginning, wasn't it? What do you get when you cross a, a Catholic and a Quaker? You know, you get. Yeah, married. yeah. Um, um, and, and so that, that was great, but it also establishes a, a kind of, uh, a, if not reverence, a certain respect for his parents. And, and then he, he reinforces that through the story that they had done nothing wrong. They had done nothing to contribute to his own behavior. It was all on him. So that in coming back, um, he was in, in many ways like the prodigal hopeful of the uh of the generosity of of those who loved him and and that witness is really powerful 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And his own strength to move forward from that moment. You know, I mean, grace deserved isn't grace necessarily, but where there is an activity on the part of the forgiven to then also not be, uh, uh, not take that that grace uh, uh, for granted and, and moving forward. And he's he's made he's made uh, his, he's exercised his own agency to make to make progress in that grace. You know, right. and that's take and that takes courage and faith on his part as well. Not uh, the courage and faith of the, of the forgiven to to genesis forth from that and 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 and, and yeah and on and honor it you know well yeah and i think what you're saying jordan is you know if, if you carry that out it's not simply about the parents forgiveness he had to forgive himself to move on you know yes yeah, yeah that's a key piece of that because he could live under the the weight of what he did to his parents forever and ever if he wanted to but the only way to really move forward is to receive that grace and to receive that gift of forgiveness and yeah tentatively at first to be sure but but then uh with great confidence move on so yeah yeah absolutely that was a much more precise and articulate way of saying that thank you father and, and, <laughs> you know a, a, along with that forgiveness in in spite of that forgiveness of himself he doesn't run from his story he embraces mm. his story you know and he lives into it every day um i just i Gosh, you know, the mistakes that I've made in my life, I try to run from them and hide them and not highlight them to anyone. But but there's so much a part. His his redemption is so much a part of who he is that mm. he doesn't run from it at all. He doesn't, you know, castigate himself uh, anymore, I would imagine. Maybe he does, but he, is, he definitely has forgiven himself. And I, I love that. I love that. It's yeah. a testament once again to his parents and his and his and the faith community that he's involved with that allows yeah. him to, to, to help live that out. You know, which is yeah. great. They've they've been a tremendous support, a tremendous support to him. And uh, you know, you know, it's interesting when when this idea of Dove Faith Cafe was first conceived, um, that's when when Andrew was in Reno, I found out. And uh, we didn't know he was going to be a storyteller. And it took all the time for that, that God needed to get all of the people in place to have our live events. And when I was sharing the timeline at the beginning of this project with the, with the storytellers, I mean, so <laughs> Jordan remembers, Jordan was there. So many people said, holy cow, look what I was doing when this, when this started. And God had me in mind for this you know all that time ago and and yeah. look what god's done you know yeah yeah that's pretty um, cool well. pretty cool any last thoughts about uh andrew's story all i right. think it's the kind of story we can go on and on about because i do i mean just to touch base on the idea that i mean it's just very applicable to in, in so many ways to, to so many different points in people's lives i think and so i i, I I can't imagine people walking away from having listened to it without finding some correlation uh, to their own to their own faith journey. And I mean, that's that's really the the bread and butter of what we're trying to do here, and why I think Andrew yeah. was so effective of a choice, uh, not not even of ours, but of, of of the overarching plan of this of this particular ministry that he 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 added um, as as all of our initial storytellers did a, a different but universal perspective that I just yeah. value so much. Yeah. I, and I, you know, picking up on that, I, I had written a note to myself to, 
at, at the very top of this to say that even if you can't relate to the very specific incidences that were in his life, there's something deeply resonant uh, about his story in, in asking the question, how do any of us get from here to there? You know, how do any of us get from that place of uh, sinful and shameful to that place of redeemed and joyful? And uh, and his story, I think, just underscores God's grace and the possibility and potential that, that God has in mind for any one of us. Amen. Amen. I like it. I like it. Hey, um, this has been uh, Father Brian Grants of the Dean of the Cathedral of South Bend and my co-host Jordan Trendleman, seminarian at Sewanee in Tennessee. Yay, Sewanee, right. Yes, is right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Marie Gambetta, and I want to thank um, both of you for joining me today. Um, it's been a treat to talk with you and to celebrate our friend Andrew. So thank you very Absolutely. much. Thanks be to thank God, you. and thank you. Thank Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'd like to give a shout out of thanks to our storyteller, Andrew, my co-host, Jordan, and our special guest, the Reverend Brian Grants. Extra special thanks to our audio engineer, Father Tom Adamson. Thanks for making us sound better than we really do. 